I would like to invite you now to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, tonight we'll look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through uh, 19. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse... Uh, Verse 16, I'll I'll begin the reading in verse 16. Before we hear God's word, let's go to him once again in prayer. Please, Please pray with me. Our Father and our God, you have spoken to your people finally and powerfully and infallibly in your son, Jesus Christ. And you've laid down your living and active word in the pages of Holy Scripture so that the church might be guarded against the wiles of the devil and might be built up the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray tonight as we hear your word read that you would mature our hearts, that you would cause us to grow up into the head, Jesus Christ, so that you might get glory through our loving obedience in him. Father, we ask that you would do this work to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 16, beloved, this is the word of God. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds." This is the word of God. At this point in the interaction between Jesus and the Jewish crowds, it seems that Jesus' annoyance was becoming peaked. What was he annoyed at? Well, he was annoyed at their unbelief. And as a result of their unbelief, he was annoyed at their wavering. We can tell from the context that the unbelieving Jewish crowds were beginning to change their minds about John and Jesus. In verse 18, in regard to John, they say, they began to say he has a demon. In verse 19, in regard to Jesus, they began to say he was a glutton, a drunkard, and a sinner. Now this is really interesting because at one point, these very same crowds that were saying these things held John to be a prophet. They came out in droves to be baptized by him. And as for their attitude towards Jesus, they marveled at his power in the beginning. They marveled at his power to heal people, to cast out demons. They were astonished at the authority of his preaching, so they were drawn to him in the beginning. But now, after only a little while, and as it became clearer in Jesus' teaching that the gospel demanded more than they were willing to give, now that they began to understand that, they slowly began to find any excuse to dismiss both Jesus' preaching and person and John the Baptist's preaching and person. Verse 18, Jesus says, John came neither eating nor drinking. In other words, John came as a prophet of old, like a prophet from plucked from the Old Testament, like the great Elijah. 
John stripped himself of all worldly pleasures, all worldly excess, any worldly excess whatsoever in his living and his preaching in the desert. He lived in lowly desert clothing. He was eating bugs and honey for meals, and he lived in the desert. And so he came neither eating nor drinking. He would not uh, afford himself these luxuries, the luxury of, of uh, eating and, and drinking. In the beginning, the crowds received him then, and his preaching as such. They received him as a prophet of old. That is to say, they considered his message and his arrival as something serious. They took it to be what it was, something serious, something that needed to be uh, that they needed to pay attention to. His work had incredible importance in their minds in the beginning. His ministry was something altogether new from God. And so they were, on the surface, they seemed to be excited about what was happening. But now they do a complete 180 degree turn. And they say, no, John is crazy. He's demon possessed. He's out of his mind. He is not doing the work of God. He must be then doing the work of the devil. As for Jesus himself, Jesus says that his ministry was characterized differently from John's. And it was. Jesus, said here, came eating and drinking. In contrast to John's ministry, he actually did afford himself some of these things. He came eating and drinking. In other words, he did not restrict himself to the desert. He did not stand out off into the desert so that people had to come to him. He went into their lives. He did not turn aside from dining and drinking wine with the people. That's what this refers to, eating and drinking, being with the people and eating and drinking uh, wine, namely. In fact, his first miracle that Jesus performed was at a wedding. So he attended a wedding where he must have ate and drank and enjoyed himself with the people. That would have been an example of him eating and drinking. John the Baptist didn't do that. John the Baptist's ministry wasn't characterized by that. On top of this, he miraculously kept at that wedding where he was enjoying himself, he miraculously kept the good wine flowing after the cheap wine ran out. He turned water into, into wine. Now, he did turn water into wine to reveal his glory as the Messiah, for sure. That is what that miracle meant. But he did it partly, too, to ensure at that time that he and those who were at the wedding could continue to eat and drink. There was a practical outcome from that miracle the wine could continue to be poor so that they all of them could continue to eat and drink at the wedding so jesus completely immersed himself in the everyday life of the people he ate and drank with them he was there at weddings he was there at funerals he normally and if he was at a funeral he normally turned that funeral into an occasion for joy because he would raise the dead person from the dead. And so he immersed himself in the activity of these every of the everyday activities of these people. He ate with sinners, tax collectors, he ate with Pharisees. He was in their homes walking and conversing among them, being with them. 
He did not stand aloof to their joys and struggles. And in this way, he invited everyone to come to him and find rest for their souls. He was incredibly open-armed, welcoming to all sorts of people, all types of people. But in all this that Jesus did, and all of this eating and drinking that Jesus did, Jesus did not, however, whitewash the truth. He told the crowds very clearly what the cost was in following him. He said, deny yourself and carry your cross. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The Jewish crowds then, being unwilling to carry their crosses, preferred rather to find excuses not to follow Jesus. They were forced then to lie to themselves and to lie to one another about Jesus in order to try to justify their unbelief. This is what was taking place. And so they would say, Jesus, as he says here, is a glutton. He's a drunkard. He's a friend of sinners. Jesus was a liar, in other words, and he was lawless. He gave himself over to eating and drinking in excess. excess. Look at him. He's doing too much. If we follow him, we might be drawn into the same sort of sinful eating and drinking in excess that he is taking part in. We can't follow him. He will lead us into the same types of sins and into having fellowship with sinful people like tax collectors and sinners. We can't follow him. Look at what he'll turn our lives into. This is... You can see now what they're, they're saying. John has, has a demon. He must be demon-possessed. That's why he was in the desert. Jesus, he's a sinner. That's why he eats and drinks. That's why he's among us. He's, he's just like them. He's just like the group of sinners. And so you can see how they begin to justify their unbelief so as not to have to take up their cross. And so this is where the parable makes sense. This is where the parable comes in here that Jesus uh, says. Jesus compares this unbelieving generation that he was speaking to, and really any, any, any generation of unbelief can be applied here as well. He compares them to children playing games. Or that is, any generation that is swayed this way and that. Can, this parable can be applied in this way. He compares the unbelieving generation to a group of children playing games. In verse 16, he says, What shall I compare this generation? It is like, so you see there he's comparing the unbelief in the crowds. And they're saying one thing in the beginning and now saying something completely different as his ministry rolls on. What shall I compare this, this unbelief here? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played a flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Now, the first thing we should appreciate here is that Jesus obviously took notice. He took notice of, and he remembered, games of children. He is using a child's game to illustrate a point. And so that tells us that as he was eating and drinking with the crowds and immersing himself in their life and activity, he took notice of the children. He knew what they were doing. In fact, he knew it so well that he remembered it and he used it in an illustration. 
to get his point across. And of course, you can remember the, the one point where his own disciples were trying to keep the little children away, and Jesus says, no, let them come to me, for to such belongs uh, the kingdom of God. So Jesus takes notice of even what we might consider the little things, the insignificant things, children's games. He knew enough of these kinds of games that children used to play to use them in this parable. So that's one thing that we can take notice or notice in this uh, in the use of this kind of parable. Also, at first glance, if you first read this parable, it may seem that Jesus compares the unbelieving Jews to the second group of kids. You can see here there's two groups of kids. One is playing the flute and playing a morning song, and the other group of kids, they won't dance. They won't, they won't go along. They won't cry. Now, you might at first glance think that Jesus is comparing the second group of kids who don't dance and who don't mourn with the unbelieving generation. But that's not what Jesus says. This is not what Jesus does. He was primarily comparing the, G- the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, the wavering Jews, to the first group of kids. Verse 16, it is like children sitting and calling out to the other children, we played and you didn't dance. And so it's the first group of kids The group of kids who are playing a game, they're playing the flute, they're playing a morning song, and they get annoyed that the second group of kids are not going along. You didn't dance. You didn't mourn. The first group of children is annoyed that the second group of children doesn't want to play dancing and crying games anymore. They don't want to pretend anymore. And so what was Jesus saying to them? If he's comparing the unbelieving Jews to the first group of kids who are trying to play games with these kids who just don't want to have any part of it, what was he saying to them then? He was saying that the unbelieving Jews were acting like immature children. That's what he was saying. They were treating the gospel ministry of both John and Jesus as something that could be played with, as a child's game. And what do children do in games? Think about this. They play games of dancing and mourning. This is pretend games. All children do this. They play pretend. They see adults doing adult things, and they mimic them. And so they play house. They play, uh, they play like as if someone has died, and so they pretend to mourn, and they play a dancing game, and they dance along with the music. This is what children do. Now, so long as all children are playing and are happy to play the games, then the first group of children who want to play the games are happy, right? All kids are getting along. Everybody wants to play the game that they've decided to play. But once some of the other other children stop responding to the games that the first group tries to play, the first group gets bored, They lose interest. We played and you didn't dance. We sang a morning song and you didn't mourn along with us. They get bored. They get annoyed with the second group of kids. Now everyone's annoyed. All the kids are annoyed. They're no longer having any fun. 
This is how the Jews, for the most part, acted towards John and Jesus. At first, the newness of what both men were doing was exciting to the Jews. They were playing the game. This is fun. We can do this. This is new. This breaks up the monotony of our everyday Jewish lives. This John the Baptist preaching in the desert and Jesus healing us and our families. This is wonderful. They were initially interested. But once the newness wore off, like the kids in the parable, once the newness wore off and the excitement was gone, they began acting like children. They were annoyed. They were bored. They wanted to move on to something else. They got bored and went off to find some other game to play. What shall I compare this generation? They're like children who are easily swayed this way and that because they quickly lose interest. The Jews tried to justify their their childish behavior by saying John was a demon and Jesus was a reckless sinner. That's what people have to do when they turn away from the way of righteousness, turn away from the Lord. You have to justify your behavior with lies, essentially. John's a demon, therefore my sin is justified. Jesus is a reckless sinner, therefore my sin is justified. I'm going the right way. But Jesus shows us here where true vindication is found. Where is true vindication found? He says, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Ungodly wisdom says, Jesus demands too much. That's what uh, worldly philosophy, worldly thinking says. Jesus asks for too much. The way of the cross is foolishness. I will find my own life, thank you very much. That's the way of the world. Godly wisdom, true price, priceless wisdom, wisdom that cannot be purchased. Priceless wisdom is found at the cross. And there you see the Son of God immersed in our humanity as the Son of Man without sin, dying for us, his people. Jesus came eating and drinking. Only a man could eat and drink. He came fully immersed in our humanity. And in that humanity, he died for us, to save us. And that is where true wisdom is found. True wisdom for your soul and true wisdom for your life. The cross is where divine wisdom proves itself to be true. That is where vindication is found. Jesus is a sinner, they said. No, Jesus died for sinners. That's what happened. They were saying all sorts of things. And then Christ died, he rose from the dead, and their lies, their children's games, were proven to be empty. Jesus died for sinners. That's the vindication that all of us need and have as Christians. The falling away of the Jews in unbelief proved that their accusations and their excuses were entirely empty. Now, friends, for you and I, we have to remember that as you take up your cross, people will criticize you. They will persecute you. They will say evil things about you. If you eat and drink, they will criticize that. If you don't eat and drink, they will criticize that. If you do this, they will criticize that. If you don't do this, they will criticize that. It never ends, and it's all part of 
the world justifying their own behavior in the world. People will criticize us, persecute us, say evil things about us. But when that happens, remember the words of Jesus here. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. Over time, let your self-sacrifice for Christ overshadow whatever empty things that unbelievers say about you. That is what Jesus is saying here. Let your actions over time, it's not that you never say anything, but wisdom is justified by her deeds. Let your good works, let your self-sacrifice, let your cross-bearing have the final say in the end. Now that's not easy. That's not easy when people are saying all kinds of things like this. He's a drunkard. He's a glutton. He dines with sinners. He's demon-possessed. He's crazy. He's out of his mind. That's not easy, is it, to constantly hear these things in, as a Christian. But hold fast. Hold fast to these words. Christ is faithful. Wisdom is justified by her deeds. To Christ be all praise and glory now and forevermore.